When I was running, I would wear a bra that was maybe one size too small, but the straps would stretch out. I'd get chafing where the hardware was. So then I said, well, I'll try running braless. First of all, that wasn't comfortable. Second of all, there's a lot of hooting and hollering and hey, honey comments from passing motorists. So that was not a good idea. And how the very first sports bra came into being was actually a joke because my sister called me and said that she had just started jogging and what in heaven's name did I do about supporting my breasts? Why isn't there a jock strap for women? Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagine and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. In the late 1960s, two seemingly unrelated movements were happening at the same time. One was a second wave feminism, which saw women in America and around the world fighting to dismantle gender-based inequality and secure a more meaningful role in society. The other was a new trend in physical fitness that was sweeping Western society, jogging. My guest today had a groundbreaking idea that would have a major impact on both Lisa Lindahl became a running enthusiast in the early 1970s and immediately noticed that the bouncing that her breasts endured while jogging made her new passion painfully unbearable. So she and two of her friends came up with an idea for an undergarment for women to wear that offered more support when they exercised. The initial prototype was basically two men's jock straps sewn together. They patented the idea, designed a real prototype, and the sports bra was born. By solving a problem that had never been addressed, Lisa created an entire industry that had never existed. And today, the women's athletic wear market is worth over $100 billion. Lisa Lindahl was born and raised in Montclair, New Jersey. Her father worked in Manhattan as a marketing executive and her mother was a homemaker. She attended private schools throughout her childhood, but after being diagnosed with epilepsy, she found it difficult to fit in and constantly sought the acceptance of her peers. I was diagnosed at age three or four, and I had my first grand mal tonic-clonic convulsion in that sixth grade classroom. So that was a big life event. There was one, (laughs) one boy who was laughing. When I came to, he was laughing, and I, and I had a crush on him, and so I remember being devastated. And my mother, of course, thought it was terrible that I had a convulsion in public, and she kept me home for a few days. So I had a couple of days at home to think about it, like how I was going to respond to my classmates. A quick education about epilepsy. There are many different types of seizures. Most people think of the generalized tonic-clonic where you fall on the floor and shake, But there are a lot of different kinds of seizures. And during my childhood, I had something called absence seizures. You just lose consciousness for a fraction of a second. People around me wouldn't know. It was only in sixth grade that I had the full-blown serious 
convulsion. So that was the first time I really thought about how am I going to handle this in my life? So how did you handle it? How did you continue to going into a young adulthood and then ultimately a young woman? How did you progressively adapt? I kept it pretty private, just chose to believe that I was just like anybody else. And my parents, interestingly, gave me a real double message. On the one hand, they'd say, you're the brightest and the best. And on the other hand, they'd say, don't do this. And you can't ride a bike and blah, blah, blah. You know, no horseback riding. But I would get up and go to the beach every day by myself. (laughs) But after the convulsion, the deal was I could keep going to the beach by myself, but I had to go say to the lifeguards, hi, it's Lisa and I'm going in the water now. (laughs) You know, in a beach community, the lifeguards are, at least in the 1950s, they were like the Adonis gods up on on the lifeguard chair. And so having to go up and talk to them was, I was very self-conscious because I knew I was different and I was pretty quiet about it. Several years later, when I was 16, 17 and started dating, then it was like, do you tell the boy or not tell the boy? And then when I became a young woman, was out in the world and starting relationships, at what point do you say, oh, by the way? But it was really very private. It wasn't until many years later when I became a board member for the Epilepsy Foundation, first of Vermont and then of America, the National that I, and I found an entire community of people involved with epilepsy who understood, could teach me things. All of a sudden, I was surrounded by people who were familiar with epilepsy, and that was a big awakening. So after high school, what was your life plan that you visualized as a teenage girl going into the potential college era? You went to secretarial school, is that my understanding? Well, here's the deal. There were no expectations for me. You know, it's a little mean to say, but probably true, to say that my parents hoped that some nice man would come along and marry me and take care of me. And that's part of the double message that I was getting. So when I was a young woman in school, I was not a jock or athletic at all. And now I can look back and see that my relationship with my body was very complex. According to my young mind, my body would periodically betray me in a convulsion or a seizure and interrupt my day, blow my plans, embarrass me, make me feel awful, whatever all those things were. So I did not have a great relationship with my body. So I wanted to be an artist. I have always written and I have always made visual art. That's what I aspired to. So when I graduated from high school, I wanted to go to Parsons School of Design. I wanted an art education and my parents refused. My mother said, I went there, your sister went there, you know, look where it got us and you need to be able to earn a living. And I know that this was related to the seizure disorder. Did you secretly apply? (laughs) No, well, let's... Put this in context. This was 1960-something. The thought that I could go get my own loan and do my own thing was, I was very privileged. Your parents paid for school. And so I crossed my arms and I, I've been told I'm very stubborn. I like to say, no, no, I'm determined. I said, well, I won't apply to any schools. So my mother picked up the phone, made a phone call, and got me into a girls' finishing school in Newport, Rhode Island. I never applied. 
And I was sent there for two years. At the end of those two years, that's when my mother took me by the hand and said, and now you're going to Katie Gibbs. Ah, that's a famous school, isn't it? Well, it's sort of the creme de la creme of secretarial schools back in the day when for a woman, your choices for any career were teaching, nursing, housewife, you know, that was kind of it, or waitress or something, you know, it was a different time. It was a different time. I mean, that was a very traditional curriculum, which was like shorthand and typing and writing. I mean, was there any creativity component to that? No, no, not at all. There was typing, shorthand, accounting. I learned basic accounting, which stood me in some good stead years later, maybe business practices or something. But we were being groomed to be good little executive secretaries because Katie Gibbs girls were executive secretaries. You know, they were the big deal. And and I hated it. I remember my first job was at Princeton Theological Seminary as a faculty secretary. I was writing what was happening. I was keeping journals. I was writing stories. And at this time, I still have the journal. And I wrote in it, I hate typing other people's words and other people's thoughts. I want to do my own. But I got a heck of an education there. Oh, my. Because working for all these professors, I remember I was typing one professor's manuscript, and I asked him a question about the content. And he looked at me and he said, you're reading that? Not just typing it? I went, uh, yeah. I didn't know that that was unusual, but evidently it was. And that's where I met my first husband. So now you meet your husband to this career was this another milestone for you going from your secretary and, and then you get married? Do you still keep your career going or how did that blend together? We met in December and were married in June. I just turned 21 years old. That's six months. I was just counting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> six and months. He was studying to be a Presbyterian minister and he had an internship up in Burlington, Vermont. So the life-changing thing was that we spent a year in Burlington, Vermont, which is where I ended up living and starting Jog Bra. And so when did you start running? Was that when you were married or is that that same period of time? I was still working as a secretary. And in fact, he had a job as a counselor in a, a residential treatment center for adolescent drug abusers. And the important thing to say here is that because of the epilepsy, I did not have a driver's license. So every state is different in how they monitor this. So I hadn't even learned to drive. And I always had to live on a bus system or something so that I could either walk to work or bus to work. And in this case, my husband and I would drive up together on certain days. And then I had a studio in our basement, and I was at the time doing stained glass and on the craft fair route. Mm. I also started working for the University of Vermont because I hadn't completed my four-year degree. And working at the university, you get a free course. So I took a secretarial position at UVM and went back to school. Now we're talking mid-70s. Right around that time, I started running. And I started running because I wanted to control my weight. I had always not had a problem with weight. Back in those days, it was called a drop-dead gorgeous figure, and I was losing it. I was in my mid-20s. And this was the beginning of the whole physical fitness craze that had really started with Kennedy when he started his Air Force fitness program. But now all of us boomers, we were starting to jog. We called it jogging. And so a friend of mine from UVM said, oh, just run a mile and a quarter three times a week, and you'll 
get fit and stay fit. And I thought, oh, I can do that. Now, I used to cut gym class. I was not a competitor or athletic or anything like that. But I went up to the UVM track and the indoor track was back then just a tenth of a mile. I couldn't get around it. So every day on my lunch hour, I'd go up there and I would run around the track and try and go a little further than the day before, just a little further. And on the day that I did a, completed a mile, went around 10 times, it was like, whoa, I have arrived. Wow, this is really great. And what it really did was running changed me. When I started, I didn't run to compete. I wasn't interested in that. It was truly my first meditation, my first real spiritual practice came from running through the the woods or up and down the streets of Burlington, Vermont. And I loved it. <laughs> and my friend Polly would look at me and go, what? You know, what? That's crazy. What, what are you doing? Because like me, she was not athletic. It was one of the reasons why we bonded back in the day. So this was out of character for me. Do you think if you had started younger, that would have been a way to help you socially cope with epilepsy more? Do you think there was yeah, something? Yeah, I do. I don't know if it would have helped me cope with epilepsy more, but it certainly would have helped me in my relationship with my body. You know, I'm one of those people, I'm in my head all the time, but running really connected me. I became much more energetic, much more creative, and I began to take control of my life. I mean, my marriage had been not working for a long time, but I was afraid to leave it. I mean, I had been told as a person with the kind of epilepsy that I have, the kind of seizures that I have, I had been told repeatedly, you can never live alone and don't be alone. You could die if you have a seizure alone. So I didn't drive. I was afraid of living alone, but running changed me. It made me a different person. And that's when I had the courage to end that marriage to face living alone. My husband taught me to drive and I got my neurologist to write a piece of paper saying it was okay for me to drive. And I got my license and I became way more independent and self-sufficient. During that seven-year marriage, I actually grew up. And were there very many other women running? I don't know. If you'd go out to the track, were you often the only woman? or? Well, I often, I mostly did not run on it. Once I got did my one ten my whole mile, I would start running in the streets or through the woods in Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont, and which is a very beautiful place. And mostly it was solitary. But so And how many miles would you run ultimately like in a week? Thirty ish. About five to six miles a day, five or six days a week. So there was no sports bra existed. So how did you go from running to an epiphany of you need to create a sports bra or the idea of something that would be better than what was available on the market at the time. Maiden form, Valley. There was, nothing, <laughs> was there, there was nothing. I mean, other than traditional bras. And what's really interesting to note is the time. I was the generation that we were out. It was Gloria Steinem and we were burning our bras. If not literally, certainly metaphorically. Because bras were designed to support how we were supposed to look. In the 50s, bras made your breasts very pointy. In the 1920s, women would put bandages around their breasts because the little boy look was in. So breast support and bras were all about creating a fashion look. They were not about a woman's comfort 
or support or function at all, unless it was a nursing bra. If it was a nursing bra, well, then it was about function. But other than that, no. So when I was running, I would wear a bra that was maybe one size too small, at least in the cups, but the straps would stretch out and I was always pulling up my straps and I'd get chafing where the hardware was. And so then I got skinny enough that I said, well, I'll try running braless. And then I'd get a lot of cat. First of all, that wasn't comfortable. Second of all, there's a lot of hooting and hollering and hey, honey comments from passing motorists. So that was not a good idea. And how the original, the very first sports bra came into being was actually a joke because my sister called me and said that she had just started jogging and what in heaven's name did I do about supporting my breasts? You know, what do you wear for a bra? Oh my gosh, it is so uncomfortable. And I said, man, I'm wearing a bra that's one size too small or nothing at all. And she laughed and said, I can't do that. And she said why isn't there a jock strap for women? Same concept, different part of the anatomy. And we both thought that was so funny. We laughed and laughed. But when I hung up the phone, I thought, why isn't there a bra that functions for just support for when I'm running? And I sat down and wrote down what it would have to do. It would. I didn't know you could eliminate breast bounce at the time, but Breasts won't bounce, the straps won't fall off, there won't be any chafing, it'll be breathable. And one of the people that I did run with on occasion was a guy who would take off his t-shirt in the middle of a hot summer run and tuck it in the back of his shorts and keep running. And I thought, that's not fair, I'm still under this heavy t-shirt, you know. Wouldn't it be great if I could do, if it was modest enough that I could actually take off my t-shirt? Because now we were, and again, this was 1977. So I made this list of what this garment would have to do, but I don't sew. In eighth grade, Polly and I had been in the same sewing class, and she got an A, and I got a D. (laughs) I mean, I really can't sew. I could build a stained glass window, I could take shorthand, I could run, but I can't sew. So that summer of 1977, Polly happened to be living in my guest room because she had gone on to become a costume designer. And she had a gig doing the costumes for the Royal Tyler Theater, the Champlain Shakespeare Festival in Vermont. And so she said, can I come stay with you while I do this? I said, well, of course. So when I had this idea, I walked up to Polly's room and knocked on the door and said, hey, I have this idea. Will you help me make this bra? And she just rolled her eyes, you know, because she's wondering why I was going out running every day. And she said to me, there's only one thing more difficult to build than a bra, and that's a shoe. I said, why? And it's because that they're not just about draping fabric or anything. They have to deal with different parts of the body and be supportive. Like a shoe is the foot, the toes, the ankle, the, you know, And a bra is the breast, the shoulders, the arms, the back. It's a three-dimensional design challenge. And she was not excited (laughs) about this. But Polly and I have a long history of getting into creative mischief together. And I knew that the design challenge would hook her. And it did. She said, well, how would you do this So it was Polly who helped me turn the idea into a patentable creation. 
So you create the first one using these just first chalk straps. Well, that it wasn't happened after a while. I mean, we tried to just build a regular bra. That didn't work. What did you experiment with? Well, in the beginning, we were just cutting up existing bras and trying to put them back together in a different way. But then, you know, humor is so important to the creative process. My husband came down and he had pulled his jock strap over his head and said, hey, ladies, here's your jock bra. Ha, ha, ha. And I thought that was so funny that I did the same thing. I mean, I, I took his jock strap and pulled it over my head and pulled it over my breast and went, oh, my God, the cup was very supportive on my breast. So the next day, Polly got two jock straps, cut them in half, sewed a cup to a cup, took the straps and had them cross in the back and put two-inch elastic around the bottom. And all of a sudden, here's this thing that went over your head, which, oh, by the way, had not existed in lingerie before. Although this was not lingerie, but it was a bra. So I went running in it and it were it it gave me support. It was just amazing. But the fabrication was terrible. So Polly got on a plane and went to New York. She knew all the fabric houses from her years of building costumes. And she was in DuPont looking around and the salesperson said, Would this be of interest to you? This is a new fabric. We don't really know what it's for yet. And it was Polly Cotton Lycra. And up until then, that summer of 1977, nobody was using it. We weren't wearing girdles or anything anymore. And Polly got this fabric and she said, ooh, this would be perfect for the cups. And then she got a plush-backed elastic so that it wasn't just elastic against your skin, better straps to go over the shoulders, sewed it all together, and bingo, we had a prototype. I went running in this thing and it was like, oh my God, because everything was built on one of the original drawings that's in the Smithsonian that Polly had done back then. It says, this is Lisa size. (laughs) Did you take off your shirt and put it in your back pocket? Well, at the same time, the culture was changing. I was part of what is now referred to as second wave feminism. And Madonna was beginning to sing and she was wearing this bullety bra thing on stage. And so the mores and everything was beginning to shift. I mean, I was the first generation that had access to birth control for women. A whole culture was changing. And so that first summer I did not whip off my t-shirt, but the next summer I did. And From this idea, this product, women started leaving their t-shirts off. That really became a norm, if you will, after Brandy Chastain made that winning shot and the photographer started taking pictures and she was so excited and she ripped off her t-shirt and was flinging it in the air. And that was when it was like, okay. (laughs) And now it's norm because you see the Olympians and I know my daughter and her friends playing tennis and running and all the things they do that oftentimes, I mean, it's outerwear now. It's not underwear, right? Well, that's morphed into the whole athleisure line. So when did you decide, okay, with this prototype, it works. Were you at this point realizing that I better patent this and now we're going to go to create a business or how did that evolve? Well, this is really, truly a story about women and women's relationships because While Polly and I were jockeying around with different prototypes, Polly had brought someone with her, her assistant, up at the costume shop. Now, Polly was not enthusiastic about this. (laughs) She was helping me because she was my friend. 
But her assistant, whose name was Hinda, Hinda Schreiber, she was athletic. She was a downhill skier. She was very excited about this. She got it. And at the end of that summer, the three of us sat down together and talked about, well, okay, I invited Hinda into the process because I knew I wanted someone who was going to be enthusiastic and helpful. And I wasn't confident doing something by myself, which goes back to being brought up with a chronic illness. So I had this prototype and Polly went back to New York City to continue her life. Hinda went off to South Carolina actually to teach costume design. And I had this prototype. I thought, what am I going to do with it? And the only person I knew in business at the time, because by then my father had had a stroke and he was dying and he couldn't be helpful, but was my brother-in-law. And he was in sales in a big corporation. And I went to him and I said, how would I even begin to do this? And we talked about the importance of getting it patented. And I had this idea that we would sell it to some big company like Vanity Fair, Playtex or somebody who already was doing bras. But I was clear that it wasn't lingerie, that this was athletic equipment. And all a woman needed to run was her shoes and this bra. So I started the, looking into how to get a patent and also, how would I sell it? You know, how would I sell this product? And then came up the issue, who is selling it? Is it just me? What about Polly? You know, I couldn't have done it without her. So what do I do? And so my brother-in-law said, well, you should incorporate. <laughs> started. So I incorporated and I sent shares to Polly and to Hinda as well because she'd been helpful and started the process of trying to sell it. And anyway, that didn't work. We went to a firm that, but you know, they still exist to this day, these firms that say, do you have an invention or are you an entrepreneur? We can help you do it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that didn't work. I backed right out of that. And at this time, I was in the middle of figuring out that I really was going to get a divorce and be living alone and having to move. So I sent the prototype to Hinda who, as I said, was in South Carolina, which at that time still had a big manufacturing industry in the state. And she, on her way to work one day, saw that someone had hung out a shingle. So it wasn't a big factory or a big corporation just saying, active manufacturing. <laughs> and she went in and said, is there any way to mass produce this? She took the prototype to them and said, can you mass produce this? They were looking for business. I mean, we couldn't have gotten any established manufacturer to work with us at that point. We had one product in one color in three sizes. <laughs> so, you know, they're looking for many more units than that. But this couple that was starting their own business said, yeah, they would help us figure out how to mass produce this. So Hinda was the money person. She borrowed money from her father to do a test run of, I forget, maybe 12 dozen bras, paid J.D. and Carolyn to make the bras, sent them up to my apartment in Vermont. <laughs> so my living room turned into the warehouse and my dining room turned into the office. And I thought it would be a nice little mail order business on the side because I had gone back to school I was finishing my undergraduate degree. I was going to apply to graduate school. I was going into education and thought, oh, well, because again, getting work was a conundrum for me 
unemployment and underemployment are the biggest issues for people with epilepsy. So for me, doing the jog bra, you know, I thought, nice little mail order business on the side while I go to school. So we put an ad in one of the running magazines. <laughs> and someone had told Hinda to say, dealer inquiries invited. And I said, what's a dealer? Because I didn't know. And she said, I don't know either, but the business professor here said to put it in. But what happened is that we started getting so many orders right away, not just from individuals, but from all these stores that it just took off. I mean, we really, it was amazing. We would ask people questions, accountants, lawyers. When I had to hire sales reps, I didn't even know what a sales rep was until this guy called me one day and said, Y'all looking for sales reps? And I kind of went, what's a rep? And there was this long pause on the other end. And this lovely gentleman said, y'all new to the sporting goods business? And I went, yeah. And he said, let me tell you. (laughs) And he spent an hour and a half on the phone with me explaining how the sporting goods business worked, how sales reps worked, what commissions were, and all of this stuff. And I hired him on the phone. I said, okay, you're hired. I mean, people were so generous. And to our credit, we were open to hearing what people were telling us. And I especially, I listened to my intuition. And it was the right product at the right time. What did the ad say? I don't even remember. It was, about, it was small. There was no visual. There might have been a drawing of the bra. I don't know. But it just said bra for running, and it had my address and my telephone number in the ad. <laughs> so you didn't know that you were an entrepreneur. I mean, it, there was no Shark Tank. There was no accelerator program. There was no bootstrap, you know, become an entrepreneur. The three of you are in the thick of it now, making it happen. This is where it really becomes a story of about women. And As I said, my motivation was to just get myself through school and through a divorce And Polly had been very clear. She said, look, Lisa, I'll help you with this, but only help. I'm a costume designer, and that's what I want to do. So I'll be in New York, and I'll help you out, but I'm not going to be in business. That's not what I do. She's a maker. And oh, by the way, at the moment, she has, I think she's up to eight Emmys for costume design. Wow. Yeah. So she was very clear that she was not going to be involved in the business. Hinda, on the other hand, discovered that she didn't like teaching in South Carolina and decided that she was going to do this bra thing. The problem was the conversation we'd had at the end of the summer was about women for women and a woman's product by women for women. And we're, if we're going to do this business, we're going to do it differently. And it's not going to be all about profit and greed. And, you know, we were very altruistic. And that spoke to me. So, when I incorporated, I sent shares to both Polly and Hinda, and we all had equal shares. And Hinda didn't like that. So read the book. <laughs> I wrote a book about all this called Unleash the Girls, the untold story of the invention of the sports bra, because it got very messy. There were power grabs, and it was very uncomfortable. My business relationship with Hinda was not easy. But what's really interesting in retrospect is that, in fact, we were perfect for each other because she was the get it done, get it off the desk, move forward, 
whereas I was the visionary. And because, again, this goes back to the epilepsy thing. My life was always unpredictable. So if I had a plan for a day, I always had in the back of my mind contingency plans. You know, okay, I'm going to do this. But if I can't get there, if I have to do it differently, I'll do this or I'll do this. And I brought that into the business with me. And it would drive her nuts. <laughs> and it's true. Without her, I might have been thinking about all the different possibilities. And, oh, we could do that. Oh, we could do that. Too long, too much, whereas she was a get-her-done girl. How did the name Jog Bra come to? Because we were always calling it the Jock Bra, because it was, that's how my sister and I had called it. It was the Jock Bra. And Hinda called me from South Carolina and said, you know what? Jock is not necessarily a good word. You know, it's not considered a nice word. And some, I said, you're really? Because my Northeastern girl self, you know, saw nothing wrong with it. And she said, no, I don't think it'll work. So what do we do? And immediately popped into my head jog bra because it was for jogging. So we started calling it the jog bra, which then later we realized we would get letters sometimes. For, we got a lot of letters and information from women. They wanted to help us. And anyway, they'd say, can I use this for tennis? Or can I use this when I play volleyball? And we're going, oh. So that's when we started calling it sports bra. Jog bra took off almost immediately, and despite having almost no business experience whatsoever, Lisa incorporated the company and became its CEO. In the beginning, Jog bra was the definition of lean. As her client base grew from sporting goods stores to department stores, Lisa and her small team would scrounge in the back of grocery stores in search of boxes to send out their shipments in. The business was booming. Over the 13 years that Lisa ran the company, Jogbra grew an average of 25% per year. But by the late 1980s, she started to wonder if it was time to get out. When she was just starting to develop the Jogbra, she tried to sell the idea to Playtex Apparel, the largest manufacturer of women's undergarments in the U.S. They passed on the idea in 1977, but now they were ready to talk. Periodically, I would say to him over the years, maybe we should sell. And so in 1989, it was the same thing of maybe rather than going into debt together, again, you know, a further commitment in that marriage, maybe we should think about that. And that's as far as it had gotten when one day my phone rang and it was a man who had been one of our buyers. And he called me and said, I'm with Playtex now. And you guys, I just see you everywhere and you're going gangbusters. And he said, I wonder if maybe there's a way we could help each other out. I didn't know that was code. <laughs> I didn't know the corporate playbook. And the, the, so he said, let's have lunch together. Come down to New York. Let's have lunch. Let's talk. So I went to New York. We had lunch. We talked. And I came back and I went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> So I don't know if you know this latest stat, but I was excited when I read this. The shipments of sports bra 2019 reached nine billion. Yeah. And by 2026, it will be $38.4 billion market. I sold too soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's amazing. And it's in part because now women are used to comfortable bras. Yeah, and just to confirm that exactly what this report says, the growth is spurred by a rapid shift from regular bras 
to the far more comfortable sports bra. So you created not just a sports bra, but you created an entire industry. I know. Isn't that amazing? I had no idea that that was going to happen. In 2000, Lisa would help launch another product aimed at women. This time, she was approached by a physical therapist named Dr. Leslie Bell, who had worked with several breast cancer patients dealing with extreme pain and discomfort after treatment and procedures. So how did you meet Dr. Leslie Bell? Well, she found me because (laughs) she treated a lot of patients, teaching them how to do lymphatic massage to deal with their issues. So she had a lot of breast cancer patients, and she had been jerry-rigging old sports bras to try and help them, because she could sew, (laughs) to help them with the swelling on their chest or their back. And she said, you have to come help me make a real product for these women. And I was not interested in going back into business again, because when I left Jog Bra, I went back into the studio. I started writing, I started painting, I started drawing, and I was doing the epilepsy education thing, and I remarried. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff going on. But I could not say no, because I saw the pictures of these women and what they were enduring. And so it was kind of really a lovely flip-flop, because Leslie came into my studio, and she was there. She knew, like with the jog bra, I was the runner. I knew all the issues. I knew knew what was needed. Here, Leslie's giving me, it's got to do this, it's got to do this, it's got to do this, it can't be that. And I'm drawing. I'm busy drawing and thinking about, well, how would you construct this? And I went to my some of my manufacturing contacts and things that I had known and learned about through my jog bra years. And we created this product and got it. It has a utility patent and now it's sold all over the world. So for the last 21 years, you've been building another market that didn't exist. Right. Except in this case, in 2012, you know, Leslie's a very successful physical therapist and a touted public speaker on lymphedema and in what's called an influencer, I guess, these days. So trying to run this business after we ran it ourselves for about five or six years, and then we decided to license the product to a company that had a gazillion lymphedema products. So although it's still our company, the product is someone else's making sure it gets made and sold. So your career is what started as, as you said, kind of a, it was a little bit of a happy accident. I mean, this sisterhood has now evolved. I mean, you've created a second industry, so that's pretty powerful. And I remember when I got my first jog bra (laughs) and I was with one of my girlfriends and I remember saying, I think we need this because I was an avid bicyclist and I did bicycle track racing and road racing. And she uh, ran track and running and I was the only girl on an all-male team. And no joke, I used to get my father's duct tape and I would tape like an X and tape myself down in a bra. And even with the, you know, it just, it didn't work. My mother thought it was kind of frivolous to have a jog bra. And so I had a little job and then I saved my money and I bought one, then I bought another. But I just think that, you know, you've broken down so many barriers and, and personal barriers, but barriers within the industry that the rest of us can celebrate and enjoy. And it's been generations, right? Because now we look fast forward to 2021 and it's just like, you know, it's part of your wardrobe now. 
Yeah. And that's why I wrote Unleash the Girls, because it's about feminism. It's about how women deal with each other, how we face our insecurities, and how those insecurities manifest and getting through them, and what can happen, the heartbreak and the joy that happens by facing all that and dealing all that. I mean, you know, I was Lisa, the poor little epileptic, and no one had any expectations, and nor did I. (laughs) And I didn't realize how impactful this one idea, when I speak to entrepreneurs or or groups now, I say, you know, what is in your head? The problem that you see that needs to be solved or the solution needs to be better is really important. And I had no idea that the sports bra would become a feminist icon, that it would create an industry and change a whole other industry. And in fact, for years after I left Jagbra, I tried to put it behind me and say, okay, who am I now? And I used to almost resent it when I'd be introduced as the Jogbra lady, until this all shifted for me in 2017, which was the anniversary of the invention of the sports bra, and ESPN decided to do a documentary on the three of us and on the sports bra. And I came to understand how many women and girls were able to embrace their own power and their own possibilities because that barrier, they were either self-conscious about their body or their breast movement. Or Title IX happened in 1972, which said, okay, if you're going to have sports programs for guys, you got to have them for girls too. But that didn't deal with the issue of this very basic piece of equipment. And so when the sports bra came along in 1977, all of a sudden, All these women and girls were able to go forward. And when I realized that what running had done for me, the sports bra was helping other young women and girls to get to as well, to be empowered, to face their fears. I mean, it sounds kind of like hyperbole, but it really isn't. And when I realized that, I went, oh. And sometimes people say, oh, aren't you proud? And I go, no, what I am is humble. That was Lisa Lindahl. In addition to her groundbreaking success as a businesswoman, she has been equally as influential as an advocate for people like her living with epilepsy. Lisa spent much of her professional life helping to raise awareness for the disease. In fact, she was the senior vice president of the board of the Epilepsy Foundation and is the founder of the Women in Epilepsy Health Initiative, which funds research on how epilepsy affects men and women differently. In my opinion, Lisa is no longer jogging. She is sprinting through life. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.